Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We've all heard the expression that the personal is political. In fact, the story we're going to talk about today, the personal is professional. It's not all that common when one's work and one's survival are linked so inexorably together as they are in the story of Tom Patterson and Stephanie Strathdee. Imagine you're climbing a mountain, you slip, and your spouse is clinging to the rope above you, and that's the only thing keeping you alive. In the story of Tom and Stephanie, it was Stephanie clinging to science, to history, and to medical bravery that Tom would have to hang on to. It's a story about the cutting edge of science, but also how everything old is new again. Stephanie Strathdee is an infectious disease epidemiologist and the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences and a professor at the University of California, San Diego. She's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins and has been named one of Time's 50 most influential people in healthcare. Tom Patterson is an evolutionary sociobiologist and an experimental psychologist. He's a distinguished professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego and one of the foremost HIV researchers in the country. Dr. Patterson and Dr. Strathdee have worked as husband and wife AIDS researchers on the Mexico-U.S. border, and now they've written a book together, The Perfect Predator, a scientist's race to save her husband from a deadly superbug. Tom, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, this all started, you were on a nice vacation in Egypt, and things turned quite different. Stephanie, tell us about that first. Well, my husband and I were on vacation in November 2015 over Thanksgiving in Egypt. Uh, Tom's bucket list included uh, seeing the Valley of the Kings, and there had just been a terrorist attack, so hardly anybody was there except us. Tom thought it was the perfect time to go. <laughs> And uh, the terror actually came from within because Tom developed what looked like food poisoning after this glorious meal on top of a cruise ship the last night of our trip. But it wasn't food poisoning at all. It turned out he had a gallstone that blocked his bile duct and it caused a giant abscess to form inside his abdomen. And that, you know, couldn't be life-threatening, but um, we found out that it was a lot worse than that when a superbug um, nestled inside this abscess, and that was what was taking him down over the next several months. What did you understand, Stephanie, about this? And, and, and really, how quickly were you able to, or was somebody able to diagnose exactly what was going on there in, in Egypt, first of all? Well, I'm not a medical doctor. I am an infectious disease epidemiologist, so I know just enough about medicine to get me into trouble. And so um, when I thought Tom had food poisoning, I was Googling all sorts of different, you know, bacterial pathogens that could have, you know, caused this. But then when I heard that he had pancreatitis caused from this gallstone, I thought, well, that's just an inflammation of the pancreas. I mean, now that we know what it is, we can treat it, right? But turns out that was just a symptom of a much larger problem. So it wasn't really until he was medevaced first to Germany and then home to San Diego that I realized how dire the situation had become. And Tom, talk a little bit about how dire it was getting for you during this period in Egypt and then in Germany and when you got to San Diego. Yes, in, in Egypt, um, I was pretty, um, pretty much with it, although I must say I started to hallucinate even there. And, uh, but it was a really scary situation being in a small clinic, not a big modern hospital. They did the best they could, could with the uh, resources they had, but it was one of those situations where you desperately want to be out of there in a place where everybody speaks English and you are in more familiar settings. Um, by the time I got to Germany, 
I was starting to lapse in and out of a coma and hallucinations, and um, um, it was extraordinarily scary at that time. I started to to really worry that I was losing my mind, which I think I was in some way. But, uh, you know, that's when it really became clear that I was extremely ill, in particular when uh, my daughters showed up um, from California. It, uh, it really signaled to me that I was in, in big trouble. When did it become clear, Stephanie, that this wasn't something that was going to respond to normal treatment, to antibiotics or anything else? Well, when we were in Germany, they diagnosed um, this superbug lurking inside the abscess in his abdomen. It was partially sensitive to only three antibiotics. It was fully resistant to 15. So um, I knew that that was bad news, obviously, but I was just stunned because this was a bacteria that I used to plate on my Petri dishes back in the 1980s when I was a microbiology student. And it, it used to be a really wimpy bacteria, and it has acquired a lot of antimicrobial resistance genes over the last few decades. So now it was the number one on the World Health Organization's list of the 12 most deadly superbugs to human health. Do you wonder, Tom, at a moment like that, when you began to understand what this was as much as you could at that point, how something like this happens? I mean, that's the, the natural reaction. Yeah, I mean, well, there's two, two aspects to your question. One is getting infected in a place like Egypt, you know, you wonder, is that something that's unusual? And the answer is, no, these superbugs are everywhere. In fact, the most common place to get infected is in a, a hospital setting. So, you know, it, it really wasn't that I was in Egypt as much as it, it was. I was just unlucky, I guess, is the right word. In terms of the actual um, antibiotic resistance, that's something that Steph can speak about more clearly than I. Stephanie? Well, um, this particular organism um, is uh, what I refer to as a bacterial kleptomaniac. It steals antimicrobial resistance genes from other bacteria. And in fact, in November 2015, when Tom fell sick, um, there was a report in the top medical journal in the world, The Lancet, on a... Um, new antibiotic resistance gene that conferred resistance to colistin, which is the last resort antibiotic that was developed in World War II. It's extremely toxic, but, you know, modern medicine hangs on to it as the, you know, the last ditch antibiotic. And now we, there was a resistance gene for this. It was, it was found in pigs in China. But by the time this paper was reported, it was already in 30 countries, and Tom's bacteria had it. Shouldn't there have been more research over the years, in your view, into more advanced antibiotics? One of the things you come away from as you tell this story in The Perfect Predator is that research into antibiotics kind of came to a halt at a certain point, Stephanie. Well, it's true that uh, many pharmaceutical companies have actually left um, the whole development field for um, new antibiotics, but I think it's a mistake to think that all we need is just more antibiotics um, because resistance is going to be you know, a problem. It's just a natural part of evolution. What we need to consider are alternatives to antibiotics as well, and it turns out that what cured Tom was a 100-year-old forgotten cure called bacteriophage therapy that had been abandoned in the West 
partly because it had been taken up so vigorously in the former Soviet Union. And talk about how you came to this idea. You had this conversation, which I'd love you to talk about with Tom, where you you sort of offered that you were going to pursue alternative therapies. And how did you come to this one? Well, um, I, I decided that I really wanted Tom to live, and even though modern medicine had really, you know, run out of antibiotic options, I wanted to ask him if he wanted to live because I thought it would be selfish of me to try to keep him alive just for my sake. So although he was in a coma and I wasn't sure if he could hear me, there was um, twitching in his eyebrows this one particular day, and I decided to have a talk with him, and I told him that the doctors had run out of options to save him and that he was going to need to fight really hard if he wanted to live, um, and it was okay if he wanted to let go, but if he decided that he wanted to live, that he, could he please squeeze my hand so that I would leave no stone unturned? And I waited, and... He squeezed, and I was so excited. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I pumped my fist into the air, and I said, you know, this is great, but then I realized, oh, crap, like, what do I do now? You know, I'm not a medical doctor. How am I going to solve this thing? And how did you solve it? How did you come to this phage therapy as, as an alternative? Well, I actually hit the Internet. I did with, what anybody would do. I, I Googled it. But luckily, there's uh, Google for scientists. Uh, <laughs> is called PubMed. It's um, a search engine that anybody can use. It's free. It's developed by the National Library of Medicine. And I punched in search terms that related to his superbug and alternative treatments and up popped a paper that had some different um, strategies. Most of them were not appropriate for Tom or hadn't been developed yet. But one, bacteriophage or phage therapy for short, was something that I knew a little bit about from my 1980 microbiology degree. And so um, I I decided, well, maybe this is something that could save Tom. And I emailed the head of infectious diseases um, at UC San Diego, who was actually looking over Tom and was a colleague of ours, Dr. Chip Schooley. And I said, "Uh, what do you think about phage therapy? We're running out of options. And he wrote me right back, um, although this is late at night, and he said, you know, what an interesting and intriguing idea. If you can find some phages that match Tom's bacteria, I'll call the FDA and get approval for compassionate use. And what exactly is this therapy? Explain it to us. Well, bacteriophage, or phage for short, are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They're 100 times smaller than bacteria. They can't be seen with the naked eye, but they are the most ubiquitous organisms on the planet. In fact, there's thought to be 10 million trillion trillion phages on the earth. And they're found wherever you find bacteria. So they're found on our skin, they're found um, in our guts, they're found in soil and water. And um, so when you need to find phages to attack bacteria that are, you know, in someone's gut, the best place to find them is actually in sewage. They have to be designed specifically for for the particular disease. How does that work? Well, it's almost like a lock and a key. It's not like any phage can attack any bacteria. They're very specific. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why 
they were abandoned by the West as phage therapy in the 1920s and 30s because when penicillin came on the scene, it was treated as a miracle drug, and it was, and phages were considered more finicky. Um, but actually, that's one of the beauties of phage therapy is that they only attack the organism that um, they, they are a match to. So if you're using phage therapy to treat a superbug infection, it's only going to kill that particular superbug, and it's not going to hurt other friendly bacteria in the microbiome, unlike antibiotics. And one of the things you explain is that uh, modern technology makes it a little bit easier to create these phages uh, that, that do match. Yes, well, phages are naturally occurring, so you can use, you know, what nature has given us. They're really nature's kind of alternative to antibiotics. However, these days, uh, technology exists with CRISPR gene editing approaches to actually improve upon nature and to clip out in certain genes that would maybe make a certain phage hit a wider range of bacteria. So those kinds of technologies that exist now are going to be part of the future. And once this treatment was started, talk about a little bit about uh, what happened. Well, we um, had several um, total strangers um, step up to the plate from Texas A&M University, from the Navy Medical Research Center, and also even closer to home at San Diego State University. And uh, we had two phage cocktails that came right in the nick of time. It was the same day that I signed the consent form for kidney dialysis because all of Tom's organs were now failing. It was thought he was hours away from death. And we took the uh, Texas phages first and we injected them into these tubes in his abdomen because that was closest to the abscess. But um, we knew that we were going to have to treat him intravenously because he was fully colonized with this bacteria. It was everywhere in his body. And if there was a hidden reservoir of bacteria anywhere in his body that the phages didn't reach right away, then it was thought that they could become, the bacteria could become resistant. And that would obviously be, you know, a game changer. So, so we, um, we, we received the Navy phages two days later after, um, you know, we, we um, inserted the first phages into his abdomen and we injected the Navy phages into his body. And, of course, we were concerned that this might kill him. If we didn't purify the cocktail well enough, um, we thought that, you know, he could die from septic shock. So that was the scariest day of my life. But right um, away, um, he, his signs started to change, his lab markers, his vital signs. And three days later, he woke up, he lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. It was just a day I'll never, ever forget. And the ICU was high-fiving, and most people had thought he was going to die. And Tom, talk a little bit about what you remember once you started to, to come out of the coma. Well, coming out of a coma isn't like in the movies, first of all. <laughs> you, you don't just wake up and say, let's go dancing. Uh, <laughs> your, uh, your, your mind is, I think, kind of asleep, and it takes a while to wake up. So as people spoke to me, things would uh, come back in waves, and I regained all of my memories. Of course, having been in the hospital ultimately for nine months and gone through seven cases of septic shock, I had a lot of physical recovery to do. The rule of thumb is that it takes five times as long to recover as you were in the hospital. So for me, it's about a four-year time period to, to recover from that nine-month time. But I think equally important to understand is it's not just a physical toll, it's a psychological toll. And it's not just for me, the patient, but also for my loved ones, my daughters, Stephanie, 
all of us had PTSD and had to go through therapy for that. Um, I think it's really important, too, to understand how important support was for me to just survive and to recover from this. So friends, family, the doctors, everyone. I was so privileged to have the support I did and, you know, in general, to have what really turned out to be global support to cure me. That is a privilege. We were in the right place at the right time. And obviously, I chose wisely when I picked Steph. (laughs) (laughs) When you began to understand what it was that that brought you out of this, what it was, this therapy that helped. Talk a little bit about your what you understood about that and your reaction to that. Well, first of all, I've been working in the uh, area of HIV since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, HIV or, or um, viruses in general were the bad guys. And so when I learned that a virus could help me, I was a bit incredulous and two, to have someone, you know, Stephanie immediately telling me, you, we saved you with sewage that had been purified. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, this is just crazy. I must still be hallucinating. So, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's really crazy. But also it was incredibly emotional for me to, to learn Uh, how much effort and energy and stress everybody had gone through to save me. But in the end, now we've, we've had a couple of dozen at least cases globally that have used phages. And so now I feel like my experience is really worthwhile, as hard as it is to believe, because I think we're changing the world. And Stephanie, talk about the ways in which things are changing, the degree to which this kind of therapy is now being used more, and, and what you think its future might be. Sure. Well, um, one of the innovations of Tom's case is that we used phage therapy intravenously. So even though phage therapy has been used for decades in the former Soviet Union and parts of Eastern Europe, it typically is not used intravenously there. And once the news about Tom's story hit the press, it really literally went viral in a good way. (laughs) And um, a lot of other patients are now receiving phage therapy in the West. Um, And in fact, we opened the first dedicated phage therapy center at UC San Diego just this last year. It's called the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, or IPATH, and um, it's part of UCSD, so it's a nonprofit. We are treating other patients. Uh, We've treated um, six other patients in addition to Tom um, in San Diego, but we, um, and when I say we, I mean our physician colleagues that are part of the center, um, have treated a number of international patients as well, and some of those have been just as remarkable uh, as Tom's. So we really see this as something um, that's very promising as an alternative to antibiotics or as an adjunct. Um, And our goal is to move phage therapy into clinical trials so that if it's proven to be just as effective as antibiotics or if it can make a failing antibiotic work better, as we've seen in some of the cases, then that really is something that could help with the global superbug crisis. 
It's estimated that one um, person every three seconds will be dying from a superbug infection by 2050 unless urgent action is taken. That's 10 million people a year. That's more than cancer, more than motor vehicle accidents. I mean, what the World Health Organization and CDC say is that um, the superbug crisis is actually a more immediate threat to human health than climate change. And is this something that can be developed, do you think, to the scale necessary that you're talking about? Well, there's 10 million trillion trillion phages on the planet, um, <laughs> and um, they're constantly evolving in response to bacterial evolution as well. And we can take advantage of that. So there's a lot of sewage around, and especially in developing countries. And, you know, what better way to use it uh, than to turn it into medicine? Tom, you mentioned before the hallucinations that you had, and you write about remembering some of those. Tell us about that experience. Well, it was a very scary experience, and in retrospect, uh, you can understand why I was hallucinating. I had a toxin from the infection that I had. I was sleep-deprived. The antibiotics themselves are uh, toxic that I was getting, and being in an ICU, you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to have hallucinations if you're in there for any period of time. So you take those things together and, you know, there was a very high probability I was going to have these very scary hallucinations. Many of those really seemed to be a product of what was going on around me and my muddled thinking due to these issues. So, for example, I was hallucinating that I was in the desert for a hundred years. Well, we had just come from the desert and I wasn't able to drink because they had intubated, uh, had me, um, intubated. And so I couldn't drink anything. So I was incredibly thirsty. So my hallucination, I think really was me, my mind manufacturing some kind of logical explanation for what was going on. And the end of that, um, hallucination, three wise men were questioning me in their white robes. Well, you know, these doctors were coming into my um, room constantly, checking my cognitive abilities and questioning me. So I think I was incorporating some of that. So I was very fortunate that I came out of this cognitively intact, or so I would argue. I think most people think I'm doing okay. And I think to a large degree, that's because people were there to support me and kept my brain stimulated when I was in a coma and talked to me. After all, you're not a loaf of bread. I could hear people even in a coma. It wasn't like a conversation that we're having right now, but I could understand what was going on around me at some level. Is it fair to say, Stephanie, that without this phage therapy that, that Tom might not have made it? Well, I'm a scientist, so nothing is ever absolutely certain when it's an N of one. But um, it's clear that he had a downward trajectory. Um, I was told by the ICU doctors, who were some of the top doctors in the world, that he was going to die within a couple of hours. And everybody believed that except Dr. Schooley and myself and his daughters and um, Tom's daughters, that, that is. And um, so I really believe that phage therapy made a difference. And now that we've seen other cases, um, I'm really convinced that it, it is a therapy that has incredible promise and it deserves uh, its fair shake. Um, it's um, been under a cloud of 
bias from you know the fact that it was taken up in Russia so vigorously around the time of World War II. So this geopolitical bias was really a cloud over phage therapy for decades, and um, it's just now that infectious disease providers around the U.S. and elsewhere are starting to take a second look. Were there those, Stephanie, that criticized or at least were skept- highly skeptical of what you were trying? Well, there st- still are skeptics. I think it's it's good to have some healthy skepticism as a scientist. But at the same time, if you're taking a, a therapy that has promise and you know, really just ignoring it when there's decades worth of experience um, and there are publications that show that it works, um, then I think that that's really a missed opportunity. And Tom, how is your health today? My health is is great. Uh, we just got back from Costa Rica vacation, did some bird watching, a little bit of hiking. Um, what I would say about my case is, while, you know, from a scientific standpoint, you always should be skeptical, my case represents evidence-based hope that we can deal with a superbug crisis. It's clearly looming. Stephanie Strathy, Tom Patterson. Their book is The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug. Tom, Stephanie, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.